Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Mostly Horror early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome to Mostly Horror Movie Night. Mostly. It freaks me out sometimes when you take a pause. I'm Steve. <laughs> I'm, I'm Sean. Um, sometimes you, 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 you take a deep breath before you do mostly, and I'm like, Did, are we frozen? Are we frozen? Um, no, we're not frozen. It's, it's episode 73. We're frozen uh, in the 70s right now. Yeah. Uh, I don't. That didn't mean anything. Yeah. I don't know what that means. <laughs> we're frozen in the 70s. <laughs> um where we got we got another great episode, another wonderful guest uh, that we've been uh, wanting to get on the show yeah. for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we were talking with him back in March, April, possibly. We were talking. Uh, we initially talked with him last summer of 2021. Remember? Yes. Yeah. And, yes. And, and this is this is how some of the things and and no fault. You know, Grady Hendrix is on today's show. Wonderful woo-hoo. guy. Yeah. Blast to talk to him. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is just the thing that happens with these busy artists sometimes, or as he calls himself in this interview, an entertainer, um, is, you know, uh, people are busy. It takes a lot to write a book, yeah. as he, I believe, <laughs> says in this uh, interview. And, you know, we tried to connect at one point and then, you know, he said he was available then and then things just kind of happened. It's it's happening with another guest yeah. behind the scenes that we've been talking to since February of like 2020. Yeah, since we started the I damn just show. Can't, I can't wait to get him yeah. on and talk about how long it's been. But um, anywho, Grady Hendrix is on today's episode. Uh, very, a wonderful guy, award-winning novelist, screenwriter. Uh, you probably know him from the Southern Book Club's Guide to Sling Vampires or My Best Friend's Exorcism. Or Final Girls. Uh, specifically, yeah. or Final Girls. Yeah. Um, my Best Friend's Exorcism is coming out as a movie with Elsie Fisher in it, mm-hmm. uh, September 30th on Amazon. Um, so check that out uh, around, or p- probably a little after this episode comes out. But yeah. um, uh, So again, we have a great interview with him. Before we get into that, though, Sean has a couple things. What's uh, going on? Um, well, so- 
<laughs> Welcome to Mostly Horror Movie Night, where we just burp all the time. Um, so the main thing, because uh, a lot of, and we shamelessly admit this, a lot of our intro segments come from the things that I learn on... Bloody uh, yeah, blo- Disgusting. Yes, on Bloody Disgusting or Fangoria or anything like this. Shout out to Bloody Disgusting um, and Fangoria. And while I would like to sit here and tell you that I was crazy, crazy prepped for this, I was crazy, crazy prepped for our interview and forgot about keeping up to date with what's going on, but I just learned that um, that Paper Girls, the uh, the Prime video show that, that came out, yeah. um, that it was canceled after just one season and the reason i want to talk about it so you have a big you have what, what are your thoughts on that initial oh. thing well i don't i don't know oh. i i didn't read the graphic novel and i haven't seen the show but that just mm-hmm. sucks i yes. hate that yes well so i hate that so much that's what i want to talk about on the intro unless it sucks well, i don't know but i haven't so, seen it but no but, but here's the thing that's what i hate so i haven't seen it i haven't seen the show um i yeah. did read volume one of paper girls uh about a year or two ago and that was at the recommendation coming from scotty young uh scotty young posted mm-hmm. about it i was like this art looks cool i had noticed it in the comic shops you know back in michigan yeah, and, really cool cover right and so i was like yeah I'll, I'll give it a shot i read it i liked it i liked volume one it felt very um you know intro to me like i knew that i had barely scraped the surface of what this story was yeah. going to be and there are a ton of volumes of, of paper girls and it, it blew up into this whole thing so i was not shocked when i heard that they were making a show for it um but yeah. when i saw the trailer for the show it just and and maybe this is me speaking uh you know saying things that i've said before but i want to acknowledge that i don't work in these industries i don't you know but my frustrations are it seems to me like we are just so focused on kicking something out and riding the wave of whatever success that it has going on and not putting mm-hmm. any heart into it and not really giving it the budget that it deserves and just kind of like banking on banking on um you know it's it's popularity already or that people will it, it almost feels like okay you don't need the budget for the effects if the heart is there but you're also just trying to kick the fucking thing out so the heart's not even really there um and that's not to say that the yeah. people that worked on this show didn't give a shit about it but i just feel like they probably had intense time constraints they didn't you know yeah. what i mean and yeah i mean more more often than not the people that are working on the show are going to you know, they want to make the show the best that it is. Yes. Any, any show yeah. or movie or whatever it was that I worked on while I was, mm-hmm. you know, in post-production, like, even if it's a show that I don't care about, uh, we'll say a show on HBO that's a reboot of an old <laughs> show about uh, teens in the Upper East Side, a show that I don't give a shit about, everyone that's working on that show is working crazy fucking yeah. hard. Yeah. You know what I mean? They don't want to be associated with garbage or right. they don't want to put out something that's like, Oh, you know, I would, I would like to take this thing that maybe someone was like, Oh, that's probably not going to turn out mm-hmm. well. And let's make it really good. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I agree with you. Like everyone's going to try to make it their best. Right. But uh, at least the, the crew. And yes. The but then you have yeah, on yeah. the producer side of things, you have these producers who don't care. They're, these are all investments. These are all investments. Or for studios. Them. And studios. Yeah. yeah. That's what I, I'm sorry. I, I'm fusing those two things together, but you're absolutely right. Um, but you have these studios, producers, whoever, that are invested in multiple different things slightly and they're just looking for the next stranger things they just want they just go this is the budget we're willing to give you we know that stranger things had this budget or or this so we're we're marking this here and we got seven different things going and basically if the show isn't an overnight fucking hit then it's thrown away 
because that's not yep. what they want. They're not interested in it. It happened to Dark Crystal. I mean, the, it it can happen to anybody. It, it can happen. <laughs> you and Dark Crystal, dude. Man. It's because <laughs> Dark Crystal blows my mind. Let me tell you. All right, Dark Crystal blows my mind because it's the Jim fucking Henson Company. How do you yeah. just cancel the Jim Henson Company? Like, you have to. Because it was on Netflix. But right, but so right there, it it's it's just insane to me that they're that out of touch with their marketing yeah. and and with art and and that they just don't care it i just don't understand it i just don't get how you don't market that better how you don't give it some time um especially with something like that like you had to have known it was something of a risk in general just because you know that what jim what the jim henson company does isn't as appreciated right now as it should be you know or as it as it yeah. yeah but it's it's timeless and i truly think that if you can get enough people to initially watch it in the first place, like that's the problem. It's not that people are watching it and aren't liking it. It's that people didn't yeah, start. Yes. And yeah. Yes. So I don't know. It's, I'm just, I saw that and immediately got really frustrated because I know that clearly paper girls is a good, is a good story. It's a good comic series. And it just felt like, I feel like without even watching the show, it deserved a real shot and somewhere in its production and marketing it didn't yep. get its real shot and so now it's just going to be dismissed as this failure and it i don't know it's just a frustrating thing to see in the the industry um yeah, yeah. i i agree with you i feel like i'm it sucks because i i you know i always want to do like press for netflix stuff and hopefully they just aren't listening to these episodes a lot <laughs> and they still allow us to talk to the netflix people yeah. but netflix is not good at marketing their own stuff yeah. Either, it's not even that they aren't good they just don't do it so for instance um, and it's really funny. I, on August 31st, uh, John Squires, again, um, I think editor-in-chief of Bloody Disgusting, mm-hmm. um, he tweeted, How bad is Netflix at promoting their movies? I keep track of this stuff for a living and had no idea that Babak Anvari's new yes. movie, I Came By, was hitting Netflix today. Single Signal boosting. So he retweeted a, um, a, a like teaser of this movie called I Came By. I go onto Netflix's media center, which is where press outlets go to get contacts and see all the stuff that's coming out. Movie's not on there. What's going on? Right. <laughs> like, what is like, going what on? Even? You know what oh I mean? And it's like, I don't know. There's so many weird things yeah. about Netflix. And, you know, I, I want to give everyone the, I truly want to give even those studios the benefit of the doubt that, like, everything's a business. The world is consistently growing and the way that people view content is changing on a daily basis. So everyone's, I feel like, consistently grasping at straws and trying to figure out what the best method or best workflow is for these sorts of things. But, like, if you're going to put out content, market your content. Yes. Well, you know what I mean? 100%. I, I do want to also say, though, that I think that it's, it's you know, it's not just Netflix. Because this wasn't even a Netflix thing. Paper Girls was a prime show. Um it's yes, a, exactly. It's a streaming thing, but it's... Time was too busy with Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah. But it, even then, it's it's also just... I think it's just movie making and show making in general right now. There's this... Uh, mm. I, I can't quote it word for word, uh, but I would encourage everybody, I'm assuming our listeners, who care about movies, who care about like this art form, to, to listen to what Matt Damon said um, about... I think he did it on Hot Ones about why they don't make movies the way that they used to. Um, and just yeah. like the different, the mindset change that happened, 
you know, uh, over the past like decade or two, uh, and yeah. and how it's all just blockbuster stuff. And I'm I'm down for for blockbuster, but even like the blockbuster itself has changed. Like he's like I can't even be in the kinds of movies that I really wanted to be in and loved before, and I have to be in, you know, this other stuff. Uh, I wish I wish that I had watched. I didn't know I would be talking about that today, or I'd be able to talk about this you wish better. Quote. Yeah, it's um, okay. Well, it's just yeah, because it's it's a video, and I'm not going to pause it to watch a 10 year video. But um, <laughs> but that's fair. He basically no, said, I, yeah. "It's I, I'm looking at this thing, uh, bar t- barstoolsports.com. Um, <laughs> I don't see a a author of this article, but I'm mainly quoting." Damon here anyway, but Damon basically said it's the economics, stupid. The upfront cost to make movies without the support of DVDs. Oh, he was talking about how DVDs, like the death of DVDs really affected a lot of it too, because they could justify a movie not like completely blowing up, uh, you know, in theaters or in this case on a streaming service Mm -hmm. because they knew that they would make the DVD money, you know, consistently. Yeah. On the back after. Um, And because of that and overall the death of physical media, that's been a big part of it. They don't have, all you have is that initial ad money, that initial release money. Um, it's a bummer. I'll tell you one thing. Yeah. I have my slobbery lips on the slobbery lips of physical media. Trying yeah. to give that bitch CPR. I'll tell 100%, you hundred percent, uh, dude. Uh, I am, I am supporting uh, physical media. Absolutely. So I will give them whatever money yeah. they need. Um, without, without taking too long before Grady's yeah. interview, what's uh what's one other thing that you wanted to talk about? Oh, it was just, uh, honestly i just thought this was cool there's a few things there's a bunch of cool stuff coming out but we're not going to take a bunch of time we'll talk about it on on another episode but um i don't think we talked at all about uh the rise of the synths i think that's what it's called um but it yeah it's called the rise of the synths and it is a um a john carpenter it's narrated by john carpenter it's a it's a documentary i think about like film scoring particularly horror scoring um, Interesting. Yeah, and uh, I don't know all the details. It's another cool thing that I, I heard about a bit before, and then I'm looking at this article for now. But it's coming out on Screenbox, which we've talked about a bit, and I don't know. Yes, we have. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Right? It's cool to see Screenbox. You know, shout out to Bloody Disgusting right. again. Yeah. Uh, you know, shout out to Screenbox for getting these um really unique documentary right. style things. That's what I think uh, is similar yes. to what Shutter does. It's really cool. Yeah. Yep, yep. Um, anywho. Episode 73. We got Grady Hendrix on this one. It's a great conversation. We talk about New York and South Carolina and Hong Kong and England. Everything. We talk uh, about everything. And everything in between. Uh, Sean, any final thoughts before we get over to that talking, conversation? Talking to Grady was fantastic. He's another one where I have, you know, even though I've only known of him for the past year and a half or so, year or so, I uh, just over a year, I think. Uh, I have definitely become a fan of his work. As I say in the uh, in the episode, I've so far read uh, his books, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, My Best Friend's Exorcism, and Paperbacks from Hell, which I would recommend to everybody. Um, he's just a blast to talk to. And we, there's so much. He's one of the interviews. We talked about this a second ago, but he's one of the interviews where I'm like, we didn't even scrape the surface of Grady Hendrix, man. Yeah. Like, we, like, we're definitely going to bring him back on and chat about more stuff. And I think you guys are going to like it. Yep. Uh... I agree. <laughs> All right, we'll get you guys over to the interview uh, with Grady Hendrix. See you on the other side. Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, 
Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk nationwide at Costco. Or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. All right, we are joined today by Grady Hendricks. Grady is an award-winning novelist and screenwriter. He's the author of Horror Store, My Best Friend's Exorcism, which is coming out soon on Amazon, We Sold Our Souls, and the New York Times bestseller, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, which is also currently being adapted into a TV series. Grady also authored the Bram Stoker award-winning nonfiction book, Paperbacks from Hell, which is a history of the horror paperback boom of the 70s and 80s. Grady, thanks for being on the show today. No, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, It's nice to, you know, quickly chat before we started recording. I know, um, you know, we were supposed to record, but you were coming into the city. I was also coming into the city on a busy traveling day and we got things messed up. I kind of want to ask our first question. So Sean and I are both in New York City. I know that you're in the city as well. Can you kind of talk about just as an artist or just in general, like what is it about New York City that is so appealing to artists are appealing to yourself specifically yeah well you know it's funny like i from south carolina um because and if you've read any of my books you'll know that because i talk about it incessantly um (laughs) and i moved to new york to go to nyu in 1992 i think um and except for a little brief time in hong kong and an even briefer time in la i've kind of been here ever since and my wife's from toronto and she moved here about the same time And we both moved here for the same reason, which was this is where we wanted to be. Um, And I go through, I don't know, are you guys from the city or when did you move here? We're from Michigan. Michigan, yeah. Okay. But when did you move here? Uh, Two years, approximately. I've been here a year, yeah. Yeah. Okay, and where are y'all? Like Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan? Upper East Side, okay. Um, That's a weird neighborhood to be in. Um, (laughs) I I thought you were going to say like Bushwick or something. Yeah. But... You know, I go through these phases with New York and um, where it can be really depressing and you just feel like you're in a rut and everything looks the same and everything's an ATM and it's <laughs> or a Dwayne Reed and it's really <laughs> a bummer. Um, and then I'll go through these phases where I'm like, no, it's still a pretty great city. Like, um, and I think a lot of it, you have to, 
there's legit nostalgia and like messed up nostalgia. So like mm -hmm. everyone, when you move somewhere, wants you to feel like you're getting there after it's done being cool. Like I remember moving here in 91 <laughs> or 91 or 92, I think 92. And everyone was like, oh yeah, 89 was when the city was over. City's over now. And now like kids who move here are like, you were here in the nineties, no way. Uh, I'm like, really? Uh, <laughs> but I, the city's definitely different. Um, and it's lost some stuff that I love, especially in Manhattan. You know, there was this bar called Grassroots on St. Mark's Place that was like my bar for years. I mean, decades. Um, mm -hmm. It was just an old man bar. It was all wood. It was $2 Bud Light and dollar, oh. or no, $3 Bud Light and $1 popcorn. They had like a TV, but it was like a tube TV that had so much gunk on the front that like you couldn't <laughs> see anything that was on it. Um, and it was great. It was just really unpretentious and, 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 and it's gone. And, and, you know, the city keeps losing places like that. There was this great sort of hidden bar, uh, in this Japanese restaurant called angel share that just closed that I used to go to a lot. And so that stuff really sucks at the same time. Um, it's still New York, you know, right. like I'll go out to Bushwick and, and someone introduced me to this Thai restaurant out there called Mau Mau that's a great, but B it's like two stories and they have a movie theater in the bottom where they just show random Thai movies. And the guy who owns it um, is hooked up with these old school poster painters who did movie posters and like he'll sell their original art and stuff. Um, wow. And you know, people used to see, you know, Times Square, the Disneyfication of Times Square. And that was a real nineties project, right? Times Square yeah. going from seedy grind houses, which is a little before my time to what it is now. But what it is now is just as seedy. Like I get it. If you were going to the state or, um, uh, you know, uh, the 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 Roxy or something, mm -hmm. and and I'm sure Times Square looks stupid to you now with like you know, but to me I look at Times Square and I'm like, every other week there's someone in a really seedy, stained, tickle me Elmo costume getting arrested for like groping <laughs> some tourist, or yes. you know Batman getting in a fight with the Spider Man, and like around Port Authority, man, it doesn't get any grimier. Like there are bars over there I won't go into. I went into this um. God, what's it called? I can never remember the title because it's, oh, the Wakamba Lounge. Um, and I'm not sure it's there anymore, but it was there until like two years ago which, or mm -hmm. right before the pandemic. And man, it was like, I was like, I don't know if I'm supposed to be here. But, uh, <laughs> it felt like being in someone's basement. Um, and so New York still has amazing stuff. And like, um, you know, it, it's still like this... Sunday, I'm going to be hosting a screening of this secret Hong Kong movie out in Brooklyn. Uh, next week, the Historical Society is having this guy who performs this Mr. James one-man show in, and it's—I've seen him do it before. He's a really great guy, but like, like he—I've never seen someone eat a bowl of soup so disgustingly on stage. Um, it's uh, you know, and then like um, Sleep No More still running. Um, yeah. uh, there's just a ton of stuff that's going on you know um so it's i i don't know do y'all like it or y'all like oh the city's busted we shouldn't have moved here no i mean you know specifically for me like i, I came to be in tv and film and i i got into tv and film i got very lucky and it's just uh and then i transition i know now work for the brooklyn nets like i, I feel like there's oh, wow. there's just so much opportunity here um yeah. that is just like you know it's it really is uh just so different from like, you know, specifically for us, like Metro Detroit. I mean, obviously it's yeah. going to be different, but um, I agree. I mean, I think even as, you know, 
even hearing the things that you're talking about, the, the random things that are going on on any day. Um, I mean, you know, there's there's repertory theaters that you can't really find, you know, at least in the bulk that they have here or even like the yeah. stuff that they'll show at the MoMA, even though it's a little overpriced, like just those sort of things. Um, yeah. You can't really get anywhere or, or very few places in the in the country. So, yeah. 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 It's, I'm bummed to have, I, I'm still kind of getting my footing here. Steve's been yeah. here a year longer than I have. And I, we had planned on coming a few months, like the initial idea, because we used to live together in Michigan. Um, the initial idea came right before the pandemic. So it was a bummer, I feel like, to be here during that time. Like I didn't move here until the pandemic was already well into the way. And I, I'm sure that that changed a ton about the city. Um, I also came here for opportunities and then and found myself mainly working from home. So I'm kind of trying to figure out how to take advantage of the city to me and, and still check things out more. Um, yeah. But I definitely well, like I, it. So, yeah. yeah. Well, two things, you know, one is when I came, first came here for school, I got so depressed my first Christmas year. I was like living in NYU housing and it was a bummer. And I had just come from a really like a really bad school situation. I went to this place called Bennington that was like tiny in Vermont. Um, and and the city can really get you down and i was really like maybe i made a mistake and all this and this is so corny but i walked i i took the subway up to fifth avenue right just south of central park and sort of walked mm -hmm. down all the christmas lights were up and it's all the fancy stores and it started to snow and i was like oh right this is new york yes. like this is like right okay like this is where the rich people are it all doesn't look like my crummy <laughs> little corner of the world i could just for the cost of a subway token at the time just go to some other fancy neighborhood yes. and yeah. um and one thing i was going to say to you guys is um you should do it before it gets cold although i've done it when it's been snowing and it was just as fun have you all been to spa castle no. No. What is Spa okay. Castle? Okay. So Spa Castle is this Korean spa in Queens. Uh, it's a pain in the ass to get to, but like between the subway and Uber, you'll get there. Um, it's great. Like it's, um, there are bars in the pools. It's like four or five stories. There's like outdoor pools. There's indoor pools. There's all these different saunas, which like some are just total BS, like the ultraviolet gold sauna. Um, <laughs> you like walk around in your robe and slippers with all these families around. There's like restaurants in it. There's bars in the pool. I mean, you sit in the pool if it's snowing outside in the snow. It's totally New York. It's like the oh. most New Yorky place. I was having a really bummer winter. My wife and I went out there, I think 2019 or I think 2018 actually. Yeah. And we were like, oh yeah, this is like, right. Like you're sitting in a okay. pool, the snow's coming down. Everyone's drinking these ridiculous cocktails. The people next to us are like practically having sex. The 70 year olds <laughs> across from us are like arguing about something with one of their kids. Like it was just the best. Yeah. Uh, I Absolutely. will make sure to give them your name so you can collect your commission because you yeah. sold me. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it used to have one in Manhattan. They called it Premier 57 because it was like on the top floor of this building on 57th Street. But then they found a dead body banging around in one of the jacuzzis that had been there for a little bit, like a few hours, <laughs> not like a few days. And they were like, they were like, you know, we've had a few problems with Premier 57, so we're just going to use this excuse to shut you guys yeah. down. Oh, uh, which you. probably oh, was for the best. Sure. I went oh to 57 once. It wasn't as good. Spa Castle's oh better. God. That's what I'm saying. So many, so many things that I've never yeah. even heard of. Yeah, just random stuff everywhere. Yeah. You can definitely have a very different day every single day in this city. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so you talked about growing up in South Carolina a bit. I'm going to quickly note that um, I 
my grandparents moved to South Carolina. Oh no. Um, about 10, well, they moved there about 10 years ago. It was honestly great. Like I, I missed them, oh, okay. but I would, I would travel with friends. We took this big road trip to go there every year. They moved to North Augusta, but, okay. um, but I would, while we were there, we would always go to Charleston and stay a few days. And I love Charleston. Yeah, yeah. You obviously talk about Charleston and Folly Beach and stuff oh, like that in your books. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so I guess this is kind of a two part question. Um, uh, kind of curious about what it's like growing up in South Carolina. Um, and that transition to here, and then also your roots in horror. Where did uh, where did your love for the genre come in? We're always very curious when we bring yeah. our guests on of those early, you know, you accidentally seeing a movie from behind the couch when you weren't supposed right. to. Yeah. So where where did that love come from? Yeah. So well, with Charleston. So mm -hmm. I, the thing about Charleston is it's growing up in a tourist town, um, and that's yeah. the same everywhere. Like sure, you, know. you immediately develop this us versus them attitude from an early age. You get really attuned for looking at all these things. Like who's a real person here and who's a tourist who moved here five years ago? You know, I've got these friends who their parents moved to Charleston when they were two and three years old. They're now they're older than I am a little bit. So they're in their early 50s now. Mm -hmm. And every time they come up, my dad will still be like, but they're not from here. Right. And I'm like, no, they've been here for 50 years, but you're right. Technically, <laughs> right. they moved here when they were babies, but they'll never be from there. Right. And so it's a weird thing. It gets you and, and it gets you attuned. I think like looking at things with a really judgmental eye um, and you're looking for people's tells and giveaways, you know, like um, so. Uh, but the horror thing, I wasn't a huge I liked horror movies, but I didn't really read the books. I mean, I read like Stephen King as a kid and Clive Barker and but I was more of like sci-fi kid uh and military fiction uh, I was like a nut for guns um, okay but movies horror movies were the big thing you know it was like I wasn't allowed to see R-rated movies so you know the ones that really stick in my mind is um the first thing I saw was I don't know if you remember this Disney movie called Darby O'Gill and the Little People it's like Sean Connery's in it it's about leprechauns um pretty it horrifying sounds... <laughs> but so, so at so the end this freaking optical effect banshee appears out of there it was like oh and it's like suddenly gets super dark all of a sudden for like the last three minutes and they were showing it at peter mansfield's birthday i think it was his fifth birthday and i remember just all of us freaking out when that came on just like no parent had vetted that tape you know we just <laughs> lost our minds um and then the other one was catching the television broadcast of The Shining uh, okay. in the early 80s, maybe late 70s. I was pretty young, so it must have been. No, it would have had to be the early 80s because Shining came out in 80, I think. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So it been like 81. And like I, my grand, my great uncle was like watching it and I would sort of stand behind his chair. And then every time my great aunt would see me, like send me back to my room. And then I'd like sneak out and watch another part. So snippets of that. I remember the Grady twins. I remember the elevator of blood. And then the third thing is, see, I would always pour over the newspaper ads because they looked super cool. Um, mm. And I remember also catching a promo, like a little bumper for um, The Thing when it was on HBO because oh, yeah. we weren't allowed to have cable in my house, but like we paid for it for my grandparents. Um, and like catching that bumper was like, you know, I remember the shot of Kurt Russell with the flamethrower, the snow in his beard. So like just random snippets, you know? Um, but the big thing for me is we lived in England for about a year, year and a half when I was really okay. little, like seven years old. 
and we rented this house from this family and they left all their books and stuff and there was this book called i think it was called legends and folk tales of great britain it was put out by reader's digest but like black cover with like this gold mask on it very necronomicon looking and mm -hmm. like it was full of pictures of like people getting their hands tied to the clappers of bells and you know it rings and they're getting tormented to death and witches being burned and people in gibbets and i i just remember as a kid being like i know i shouldn't be reading this but like this is fascinating and it made England seem like it made sense, you know, like, okay. oh, right, this is why everyone here is so cold and miserable all the time. They're always <laughs> getting tortured to death. Um, and also, my parents would take us to, like, national trust houses, and they'd always have in the gift shop, um, a, like, usually a book, usually aimed at kids about the hidey holes for the priest holes for mm. when people were hiding Catholic priests from getting rounded up and tortured to death. And they'd always have you know, these secret passages and priests being tortured. So I'd always pick those up because it was like the house was boring to like a seven-year-old, but like that was cool. Yeah. Um, and so that was the stuff I really fixated on. Sure. Yeah. It's I, I have to say two things. Um, a, I remember my grandma being really concerned because every time there was any sort of documentary that talked about medieval times or specifically torture devices, I was fascinated, um, which I feel like <laughs> it, that's a fair thing to be concerned about is like a kid yeah. having a just a healthy interest in, in torture devices and, and things like that. Um, but also, I looked up that Darby O'Gill and the little people because I didn't recognize it by name. And you, this is the second time in a row on the show that someone's punched me in the face with nostalgia. I don't think I ever watched the full movie, but I remember sitting on the couch really young and being terrified by this movie. Um, yeah, even just the leprechauns. Terrified by, oh yeah, I was going to say, because yeah. I've seen clips of it since, and I'm not going to watch the whole thing ever because it's so burned into my brain, but <laughs> even the op like the effects to make the leprechauns are pretty hideous. Like, yeah, it's just yeah. uncomfortable. It, it's it, uh, yeah. unsavory. Unsavory, yeah. <laughs> I think, is the term. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I have to oh. rewatch it now. <laughs> but, that's, yeah. but That's so good. It's so interesting because we, uh, you know, obviously, like, yours Yours is a good mix of, of actual horror with real-life horror. Or not yeah. actual as in, you know, filmed horror. Um, so it's always interesting when we get those examples of real-life horror that people are... Um, kind of attributing to their their beginnings of, yeah. of uh, the horror genre I'm, well you know like history is so fun like i don't understand people who don't like it i get again you get taught badly a lot of yes. times but like you know it's really crazy and there was an alan moore quote where he was talking about when he was writing from hell and he gave this interview he's like you know if you were transported back to the streets of victorian london it would like be it would be like a science fiction film. I mean, you'd be looking at albinos being led around on chains, alligators in the gutters, children of seven years old prostituting themselves, children eight years old drunk on gin. He's like, you wouldn't speak the language, you wouldn't know the money, like nothing would make sense. And I always feel like history is like science fiction, you know. And it's, yeah. it's yeah. I, I'm a I love and a lot of my books are set in the past, and it's kind of an excuse for me to like immerse myself in another decade. That's yeah. fair. Yeah. I'm Jeez. that oh. it reminds me specifically one of one of my one of my uh favorite like recent watches of of an old horror film is The Devils. Um oh, which is yeah. based off great. It, so it's it's a phenomenal film and it's it's wild and it's based it's based off of, you know, a historical event loosely. 
Um, but just just that fact that it's based off a historical event yeah. and be so interested in the actual you know background of it. Um, well, and also one of the things they do, and I'm a big fan of Hong Kong movies, and like mm-hmm. one of the things that Hong Kong does is when it does a period piece, nine times, mainland Chinese period pieces like Zhang Yimou, Race of Land, that's very different, but like Hong Kong period pieces, like they play really fast and loose and they use the history to make it cooler, not to weigh it down with gravitas. So you'll have horror movies and action movies, and all this stuff, and they're set in the past and they, they use it with a really light touch. Um, and I feel like that about um, The Devils is one of the few mm-hmm. English language movies set in the past that doesn't use the past to turn it into like a Merchant Ivory museum exhibit, right? Yes. You've got that beautiful Derek Jarman um, art design. You know, the the production design is gorgeous. gorgeous. Those big tough, <laughs> and it's all based yeah. on real things, but then kind of like tweaked slightly beyond. Yes. And it, and just, it feels so vital and so alive and so alien, but so time. It's such a phenomenal film. Yeah, absolutely. It was one of those things that I, I think I saw a still of it, and I was like, I can tell from this still I'm going to enjoy yeah. it, at least how this film looks, which is phenomenal. Every frame of that movie is just beautiful. Yep. It's great, and, and I wish that upsetting. they had it on Blu-ray. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. upsetting. Um, As horror should be. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm. Uh, I'm curious. I didn't have this written down, but I just. I wonder. You know, you're. You're. I'll, I'll say very successful. Uh, very successful novelist and writer. And I, I'm curious. You know, you seem while you're talking about all these different things and the different places that you have grown up or lived throughout your life, um, and the way that you seem to remember these different places that you've been or visited or, or, or bars that you've been to with the descriptive detail on a day-to-day basis. Like, do you view things a different way or try to remember things a different way? Like, are you someone that writes in a journal to remember things? Are you, are you consistently trying to, um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I always wonder 100%. that because I, you know, I feel like <clears throat> great artists are always people that have this, uh, encyclopedic knowledge of things that they're talking about. Like when you listen to a great director speak about their film, they're referencing 80 other films when they're talking right. about it. And so speaking with you, it's very much the same way. And I'm just very curious about your process with how you're remembering all these things from your life. Right. Well, you know, one of the things that, I mean, I appreciate the great artist thing. I don't consider that. I mean, I consider myself an entertainer, but you know, one of the things is I realized early on is what I have to sell is my um is unmediated experience right like Mm -hmm. so much of the experience we get we get through our phones we get through a screen we get through a book we get through you know i I, and and so for me i really really feel like unmediated experience the direct one-to-one you are there experience it yeah it's getting rarer and rarer and more and more valuable so I really try to stay off my phone as much as I can. Like I, you know, have an internet timer that blocks it during the day when I'm I'm working. Um, I really try to pay attention when I'm places. I keep notes. Like I've got so many things. Uh, I call them uh, uh, different names, but you know, it's just writing down stuff I see or like what's that. Um, I read this interview and I love reading interviews with other writers because I really believe that this is not a magical process. Like I want to look under the hood and know how things work. So um, Hilary Mantel, who wrote those great uh, Thomas Cromwell books, um, 
she uh, said that, you know, when she used to every day on the way to school, she would do the weather. She would try to describe the weather that day in one or two sentences that captured it. So I have an office that's a little like three blocks from my house. So I try to do that every day when I'm walking over there. Um, and then there's other stuff I do, like as I get older that I just have to like, um, I keep a journal of like every book I read, everything I watch, just in mm -hmm. a sentence or two about it because I'll be, I, I have friends who are like, oh, I've seen this movie. Or they'll be like, oh, I saw that movie years ago. I forgot about it. I'm like, I don't, what's the point of seeing it if you're just going to forget it? And I get it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I want to remember, you know? Um, and I also like, um, I keep a really religious uh, word count every day for writing. Like um, I write down what my word count is every day. Cause when I start, I read the, uh, I was reading this writer who did that and I was like, oh, I should do that. And I realized I was kidding myself. There were days when I thought I was getting a lot done. I wasn't getting that much done. And so it creates kind of a feedback loop. You know, you want to make sure you hit that count the next day and the next day right. you want to keep that string of days. Yeah. So, you know, that's stuff I do. Um, I'm constantly trying to condense stuff and, you know, steal from things and, and go to stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I, my next book set in uh, St. Augustine, Florida. And um, so I went down there, you know, one of the nice things about making a little money from writing is I can do things. I went down there for a week, you know, and rented a place and really just like, what's the weather like? What's it like at two in the morning walking around St. Augustine? What's yeah. it like being in the woods? And it's horrible. Um, <laughs> they have these like weird black flies that swarm you. It was just disgusting. Oh. What's it smell like? And I just, I, you know, and I think one of the reasons this is so uh, important to me is I, when I wrote this book called My Best Friend's Exorcism, sort of about high school and these, these girls in high school, and, and it's set in 88 when I was alive and, and in 10th grade, near in 10th grade. And I was really proud of my first draft. And my wife was like, this book sucks. Like this is this is garbage. Wow. And I yeah, and I really <laughs> had this like this tiny man tantrum, but she pointed out that I was just recycling stuff. And right. she was right. I was recycling tropes from John Hughes movies and other things and cool ideas and all these things. And so like I sat and like reread journals. I didn't have any journal from tenth grade, but I had some from eleventh grade. I had one from ninth grade, you know, and I, I reread letters that friends wrote me. I tried to write them, like I'd copy them over to like, what's it feel like to write this? My wife yeah. gave me like stuff, photos and stuff. And like, and I tried to really remember what it was like. And that's when I realized it's like, it's so different what we think we remember and what we think something's like and yeah. what it actually is like, you know? So right. that's the job, that's my job, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's a very interesting, it's, I much to the same way that you were talking about, you know, uh, seeing under the hood. It's it's so fascinating to to hear about that process when we talked with uh, Daniel Handler, Blumity Snicket, uh, in a couple oh, yeah, of yeah. episodes ago. Like his yeah. very similar, uh, you know, not similar to your process, but it's very similar, um, you know, in the way that it's very interesting to, to see under the hood. Um, That's funny. Dan I know Daniel from years ago. Um, I was I was keeping body and soul together doing freelance publicity work for movies that like no one cared about. And I met this dude who was he was Gus Van Sant's editor for like the first five movies or so. Interesting. Uh, Cause then, then Gus Van Sant like traded all his like behind the camera crew uh, after To Die For I think. And, and like sort mm -hmm. of Hollywooded up. But like the group that stayed with him. 
So this was his editor, and it was his directorial debut, and it was this movie starring Bill Pullman called Rick. Um, and Daniel Handler wrote the script. Um, and I still, and I did the publicity for it because like the, the studio was like dumping it. And, um, and, uh, but the script is great. It's a really good movie. It's, it's a little stylized, it's a little arch, but it was mm -hmm. so good. And uh, Daniel had this idea he and Curtis wanted to do for the next movie, which was gonna be about how s producers and, and talent managers in Hollywood would go out into America and just find these nice kids, these kids who did musicals at the church, and then they get a, um, addicted to cocaine and and take them <laughs> to Hollywood and like you know basically they were like performing like monkeys and they would like they were basically you know like under lock and key and their souls were owned and celebrity was just this horrible hellhole. And I really wanted to see them make that movie, but no one went to see Rick despite my best efforts. And oh. so no one was going to let him make that movie. But oh, if you ever get a chance to see it, it's Rick yeah. is really a lot of fun. Yeah, I'll, I'd love to I'll have that. to I'll have to watch that. I know I know Daniel Handler's in the in the midst of making a musical, so I think that that's he is uh, really a, a stage cool musical or yeah. a movie musical. Yeah, a, a stage musical. Yeah. What's it about? I we don't, don't know. He, we I, couldn't he get said, it out of him. Yeah, yeah. He, he's, I think it's I think it's a Lemony Snicket written musical, which um, yes. makes me very interested. And I think nice. he's working with. The uh, one of the guys from um, the Decemberists is all. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. what it is. Yeah. Either way, so, very you know that very excited awesome. for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although I always so, felt like uh, what's his name who does the magnetic fields? Do y'all know that band? Yeah, uh, I, don't, I don't know the name of the person, but I always thought that was such a good match for his sensibility. But anyways, okay, sorry, carry on. Similar, no, very, very much so. Um, so talking a little bit more about your writing, you know, you you have um, specific things that you're talking about in each book uh, or that kind of are through lines through your material. Um, I, I'm curious about a few in particular, but one, you know, um, the Southern Book, Clyde, uh, book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. Obviously, it's about a book club, but you have at the end of your book so much wonderful book club content. Um, and you also sprinkle some book club uh, or talk about book clubs a bit in um, My Best Friend's Exorcism. But I I'm curious what your background with book clubs is. I mean, you have, like, at the back Not of this... Good. No, no. <laughs> your personal relationship yeah. with them. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't do book clubs. They're just not my thing. You know right. what I mean? Like I, I read really fast and I read for very particular reasons and like right. a lot of it's reading for work and I've just have always been that way. And so like I, I, but I also think book clubs are book clubs get a lot of flack. Like my mom. So my mom has a book club that I think is in its 46th year. So it's like a little bit younger wow. than I am. But um, and I hated them so much when I was growing <laughs> up because like, you know, it, it's it's the typical thing, right? You're, you're a teenager, you're judgmental, you're like all these stupid women reading boring books and like laughing too loud and drinking white wine. It's that cliche book club thing. And if you read, I mean, I've read books because when I wrote that book, I read a lot of books about book clubs. Yeah. And there's okay. a lot of them that are they're ostensibly in praise of because it's like we love chocolate and we love sex and we drink white wine and read these books and they treat it very um <laughs> in a really sort of shallow way and that's cool man everything doesn't have to be you know yeah. crime and punishment yeah. but i realized as i got older two things one is that I got to know the women in my mom's book club is more than just my mom's friends or my friend's yeah. parents and as human beings. And I realized that they, over the course of these 40 years, inevitably went through life together, you know, and they were really there in a very quiet, very 
supportive way. It was really very like solidarity. Um, mm -hmm. These women had this real solidarity with each other and, and they went through some pretty rough stuff together that I only found out about much later because you don't want your kids to know that crap when they're right. growing up. And and that when I found out some of it and there was one thing in particular where I was really I was really sort of embarrassed that I'd been such a judgmental prick about them as a kid and as a kid, you know, all kids are judgmental pricks, You're especially teenagers. Yeah. 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 But I was, I was really ashamed. And that was one of the reasons I wrote that book is because I wanted to, as sort of a way of apologizing in public to give them all kind of a hero moment, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. because they did, because they'd gone through stuff that was worthy of a hero moment, but it hadn't been public. It had been private. Um, and then the other reason is, you know, I I can be really glib about crap, and and I used to be very, you know, book clubs, you know, and you know they have names <laughs> like bitches and books and stuff like that, and, and and then one day I was like, why am I such a jerk? Like, what is wrong with people who decide to make books and reading a real big part of their life and a part of their yeah. social life in this? And, and sort of hold themselves the way people have workout buddies who hold them accountable, like Absolutely, book yeah. buddies who hold them accountable. And I'm like, why on earth would I ever look down my nose at that? Like, you know, everyone's busy, man. They're raising, yeah. we're all raising kids and families yes. and, and dealing with crap and life and jobs and all this garbage. And then to be like, but every month, I'm going to carve out it. And, and whether you're reading, you know, a biography of Winston Churchill or, um, you know, where the crawdads sing or, you know, beach club of Nantucket or mm -hmm. whatever it is to make that something big in your life and permanent. What the hell yeah. is wrong with that? And why no. the hell would I have a problem with that? Absolutely. Since I sell books. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so I really, you know, I find that once I turned 40, a lot of my life is about um, apologizing for making fun of things that are actually pretty awesome yeah. for the first 30 years of my life. Yeah. I think I you did a pretty good job of it. Uh, in this, yeah, with this <laughs> Thank book. You. It, it seems like, yeah, you, you definitely, everything that you just talked about, about them, you know, the kind of the bond that these women have and, um, and the... Uh, all the things that they deal with, like, you, you don't know, your mom and, and her book club might have had to deal with a vampire that moved in down yeah. the street, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, because that's the thing, right? As a parent, you don't tell your kids this stuff. Like, yeah. so then your kids are like, my parents are lame. And it's like, buddy, you have no clue if they are lame or not. They may be right. lamer yeah. than you think. They might be more awesome than you think. Yes. But you yeah. don't know. Um, you know, someone once said something to me that I thought, it's one of the two things someone ever said to me that I really stuck with me the rest of my life and, and for the better. Because uh, people always say things like, oh, you're a little chunky or like, oh, your posture is <laughs> interesting. And then for the rest of your life, you're like, what, am I standing weird? What's wrong with me? <laughs> um, but uh, but they said, uh, you know, you will never know what goes on inside anyone else's marriage. And, you know, and, and your parents, that is a marriage. And even as a kid, you don't relate to your parents as a married couple. You relate to them as mom and dad. And, you know, from the most messed up marriage to the the best looking one you really have no clue you know it is yeah. a secret yeah. society of two people that is for better or for worse completely separate from the rest of the world yeah absolutely very very succinct way of saying that i yeah. i agree i think even just growing up in general is learning like 
I've talked about my movie taste a million times on this podcast, but like realizing the things that I would turn my nose up at when I was younger mm. and being like, how pretentious was I? You know what I mean? And, and oh, actually yeah. enjoying uh, things that are just entertaining for the sake of being entertaining is, is something you realize growing up. Um, well, also the level of craftsmanship in a lot of movies that I like in the nineties, man, I, you couldn't have paid me to watch a Hollywood movie. I was watching a bunch of Hong Kong stuff. Mm. I was like watching like artsy stuff. I was, you know, and, and, um, and so now I'm going back and watching all this stuff I miss, like my cousin Vinny uh, oh. and, and Philadelphia. And like, so good. I tell my wife's really annoyed by this project because I, I text her. I'm like, oh, my God, Philadelphia is really, really good. I had no idea this was actually such a great. And it's a Jonathan Demi movie. It's not like Oscar. Yeah. It's a legit great. And my wife texts me back. She's like huh, I never would have thought that the Oscar-winning movie that <laughs> stars two of the best actors of their era was actually good. What a revelation. Thanks for sharing. I'm like, God, I, I am an asshole. Your, your wife sounds hilarious. The two yeah. things that you've said that she said yes, to you so far has been her just like, <laughs> just smacking really you about it. You know, yeah. we got married when she was 19 and I was 20. So like, we've kind of grown up together. And so yeah. we really have... Um, we really have no um, uh, rose-colored glasses about each no. other, which is nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was about to say it sounds it sounds like a an amazing relationship. She's made me laugh twice so far. I haven't even met her. Um, but <laughs> when you meet her, she's a total dud. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll tell her that you said that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, I wanted to talk a bit about you know we've talked about books and we've talked about movies. You have several things that have been. You know that are either being turned into movies, as we mentioned, as Steve mentioned in your little intro spiel that he gives for everybody. Um, but you you have multiple things that are being converted from your writing into movie, or you've written you know screenplays for movies. What is that like? What is the the a the feeling of having your writing kind of picked up by a studio mm -hmm. and and adapted into something? Uh, and also, what is it like to sit down and write a screenplay and know that it's it's going to be turned in and working with people? Yeah, and, yeah. So so. I don't want to make this too boring. So I love writing screenplays. It's a totally different discipline, but it really, I'm not sure writing books help writing screenplays, but writing screenplays has really helped me with books. Okay. Um, and they're so different, right? Books are completely yeah. internal. Everything's from a character's point of view. Even that omniscient third person narration, it's filtered through someone's sensibilities. And, yeah. and books give you that ability to get inside someone's head. Movies, it's all external. And one of the biggest wake up calls for me was for a long time, um, for a long time, um, I really didn't want anything to do with my stuff getting made. And I was like, whatever, let it go. I write the books, let that stuff go via con Dios. And um, Gail Berman, who's the Fox exec who, who developed and really shepherded Buffy and Angel and those shows along from, from conception, uh, she has a, uh, she optioned horror story, which is about a haunted idea. Um, very early on, first thing's an option. And I was like, I don't want anything to do. And, um, uh, uh, um, um, oh God, I'm drawing a blank. Um, oh, Charlie Kaufman was on as an executive producer, uh, cause he had read it and really liked it and recommended it. Uh, they got Josh Schwartz who did Gossip Girl to come on as the showrunner and the writer. And man, they tried to shop that thing everywhere. And finally, finally, finally the options ended. And I looked at it and I was like, because they gave me all the scripts, all the treatments, all the pitches after that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, 
oh, I see. Because I was like, these are really smart people, right? These are not dummies. Yeah. Like Gail Berman and Char Josh Schwartz, they know TV. You know, they've yeah. made a lot of it. Um, Charlie Kaufman, he wasn't as involved, but these aren't dummies. These are, yeah. so if there had been a way to make this into a TV show, they would have figured it out. And I realized two things looking at the material. One was, this isn't a TV show. It can't be. A, they've tried, it's not possible. But B, the story is about these people in this Ikea, or not Ikea, this Orsk store, this Ikea knockoff store overnight. It's a haunted house ride. It's a dark ride. And mm. that's what it is at core. And with all my books, I try to have a log line with them um, because it keeps me oriented. Because one of the things about books is they take a long time to write. There are a lot of words and you get lost. And sure. the log line, like with my best friend's exorcism, I'm like, it's about two girls whose friendship is strong enough to beat Satan. Period. When I got lost, I'd be like, that's what it's about. Reorient. Cut this other stuff that's not about that. Keep going. Uh, and that's something I really learned from screenwriting. Um, and I realized two things. One was looking at their work, which which wasn't bad work, but it was like they didn't have that log line. They, they didn't see that story engine that drove the story. Dude, set it in outer space. Make the characters, you know, put them in the 19th century, make them marshmallows, whatever. But as long as it has that story engine, that's what mm. needs to be there. And at that point, I realized I need to be involved because I know what the story engine is for all these projects. Yeah. I'm the guy who says this is what it's about. Um, and sometimes people don't want to hear that. And that's fine. Yeah. But these days. And so the other project that I wasn't involved with in my best friend's exorcism, which is coming out on the 30th this month from Amazon Prime. Yeah. Um, which the actors did a great job, but they lost track of that story core in parts. And I'm like, you know, I wish I'd been there to sort of remind them of that, but I wasn't involved. The actors are great. And if they just remembered that, I think it really like they would have, they would, but also I hate my own stuff. So other people who've seen the movie like it more than I do. I just, I'm, right. I'm if it's That's mine, I think it needs to be fixed. Um, but one of the other things I realized looking at the horror store stuff was they had, um, in turning it into a TV show, I realized one of the things they leaned away from is um, this real fatal flaw in the book. And one of the most, and the fatal flaw is that one of the most, two of the most boring things that you cannot show in a movie, one is someone thinking about something. That just looks like someone's sitting there. It is stupid. It doesn't look yeah. like it. It can't, it doesn't exist in a movie. Yeah. Two, someone making up their mind or changing their mind doesn't exist you cannot show that in a film it is impossible you can show the decision but you can't show that and the two big pivotal moments in the book of the horror store are amy the main character being confronted with the hopelessness of her life and it breaks her and that's all internal can't do it and the other thing is at one point she changes her mind and makes a decision to go back to the store and rescue her friend. Sorry, spoiler alert, the book's from 2014. <laughs> um, and you can't show that either. You can't do it. You can show her turning around, but there is no, and I tried it. I tried draft after draft of the script. Yeah. There's no way to convincingly build that moment. Um, so those two moments had to go and they're the big linchpins of the book and they work in the book and the movie's yeah. not the book. And in taking those two things out, I then had to rewrite the entire thing. And it took draft after draft after draft to get very, very far away from the book and then very, very close back to the book. But to yeah. sort of like take out these two cornerstones and rebuild the house around it. And it was really 
super educational for me, like really yeah. educational. Um, and just one last thing, because I know I'm monologuing no. here, but one last thing about Superman, if you re if you care enough to read like many of my books, you'll notice that with books like Horror Store or even my best friend's Exorcism, it's a little better, but I'll have characters in a car going somewhere, sometimes yeah. by themselves. Yeah. Who cares? If you look at my later books, if someone's in a car going somewhere, mm -hmm. they are in a car with someone else and they are going somewhere they don't want to go or they really want to get to. Something's happening because there is nothing more. I see this all the time with with book writers where they'll just burn words. This guy's going to walk from here to here and he's going to think about something. This guy's going to walk to this other office. This woman's going to drive. No one cares. Nothing's happening um, mm -hmm. in a movie. You can't burn that time. You're like, okay, if they're in a car going somewhere, something has to be happening. Yeah. Or, you know, and so, and I really learned from that. So you'll see in my later books that it's really either the driving scenes are, or going play scenes are almost very minimal or something's happening in them. And and you could see sort of my education as sure. you read along. Yeah, that's, so I've read, um, I found you from Paperbacks from Hell. Uh, oh, okay. And, yeah. and, love that i i still haven't gone i don't read uh non-fiction the same way i do fiction like i i'll just get through a fictional book uh paperbacks from hell right. was great but in the middle of it i was like okay i have to, i like the way that this guy writes about stuff so i went okay. and picked up um the southern book club's guide to slaying vampires and that was my first book and i just recently read my best friend's exorcism and oh. i thought that best friend's exorcism was something that came out after and learned you know, only recently that you yeah, wrote yeah. that first. And I can tell, like, I really enjoyed both books, but I can tell how your writing changed and, like, even even just, like, the little Thank bits. Thank God. Yeah, well, it's, <laughs> I, I truly did. I truly loved both. Um, I do favor favor this one, probably because it's the first. Oh, and nice. it was Yeah. But, um, but, yeah, it's just really interesting to hear you talk about that because I can see that you're so analytical about your work and you, you're constantly growing. Like, it makes, it makes complete sense. I really sense. appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm, I mean no, it. I, really I, I could just tell. Because, like, yeah. yeah, and it's funny, you know, I just feel like if I'm, not getting, if I'm not addressing weaknesses and getting better, what are they doing? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. what's the point? Um, and someone was telling me, I was like, really? Because I, I find writing books hard, but it's a job, right? Jobs are hard. That's why you get mm -hmm. money for them. Um, and someone's like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, but and it really rubbed me the wrong way. I've had it. I, I, I was just kind of like, what? Like, w would you say that to an athlete who's like wants to, to beat their time or beat their score? Yeah. Would you say that to like someone coding who wants to make more elegant code? Like, like this is not like I, I, the job is about getting better. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's what yeah. it is. But also, I got to say, I was just scanning in a bunch of covers. Speaking of paperbacks from hell. Oh, Ruby Jean Jensen, Mama. Uh, look at that little doll. She's it's so good. So the... <laughs> uh, man, it's like, it's the, one of the great things about writing paperbacks from hell is like, just keep finding this stuff, you know? And it's like, there's so many books out there that are so yeah. amazing. You, um, I don't want to push time too much or anything, but uh, one of my, because I'm, I'm an illustrator and one of my favorite things about oh, paperbacks yeah. from hell was looking at all of the illustrations, uh, I have been a horror fan. I'm, I'm 29 now. I've been a horror fan, like a diehard horror movie fan for 19 years. So I've watched a lot of movies, but I yeah. haven't read that many horror books. And, um, and you know, it's only recently that I'm starting to do that more. And I don't know why I've loved reading, but it was mainly fantasy stuff. But going through paperbacks from hell was like, I need to go to whatever value world, whatever bookstore, <laughs> whatever I can find to find these pulpy, you know, 
fiction books that you're talking about, horror and, and sci-fi fiction books that, that you're talking about. Um, because well, you the know, art is just the, so great and they seem the crazy. so good. And, you know, yeah. working with Valancourt has been really nice to bring a lot of these back into print with the original color illust cover illustrations and, yeah. you know, paying the artist to get some of these artists like, what, I'm getting a check for this? Yeah. You usually just rip <laughs> these off. Yeah. Um, and what's been wild is with some of the books, we've really, there's a couple of them, uh, Sean Hudson's Spawn, um, stage fright, uh, and what's the one we're doing right now? Oh God! Oh, K uh, Ken Barr's Killer. Well, you know, with stage fright and and Spawn, no one can find the color cover illustrators because you know they used to crop off their initials or blur them over scare them. And we've gone for years. Me and Will Erickson, who did Paperbacks from Hell, and Jay over at Valancourt, um, we've gone for years asking artists. We just can't identify. We want to pay them money, you know? Um, and we just wow. did also, we're bringing out this book, Killer, about a, a killer whale, which is so good. Um, and uh, Ken Barr did the cover art. Ken Barr has no more estate. Like, we, he passed away. He didn't have children. He has an ex-wife, but no one can locate her. And they think she might have passed away. And we finally, like, but we finally, like, we spent months looking and we finally, finally, finally found a random guy who once reprinted some Ken Barr art and Ken Barr, I think it's like his ex-wife's cousins manage his estate, but like they'll get, and so, but it was like, it is wild to me, these artists who die and their work is just yeah. gone. They're no longer benefiting yeah, from it. It's, yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, artists make lousy business people and it's too bad because they keep getting screwed. Yeah. I, thank God for Steve. <laughs> if it wasn't for Steve, this podcast, like every, I am, I am the most unbusiness savvy person yeah. in the world. So yeah, I can't. Well, even and illustrators it. especially because the work is so labor intensive and it gets treated as such disposable crap, you know. Um, and everyone talks about how when cover illustration really changed, and also in the book business, and I think there was maybe a bigger shift was when Photoshop came around in the mid 90s, early to mid 90s, not because everyone started doing it or it made it easier. Because a lot of these artists like Tom Hallman and people like that, they're like, it was great because we yeah. could combine our traditional illustration techniques with Photoshop. Like I was no longer poisoning myself, mixing colors. I could really get the colors precise yeah. and reproducible. I was able to do more consistent work that looked beautiful. They said what yeah. the real change happened was Photoshop let the sales and marketing department start doing mock-ups themselves. And yes. previously they'd be like, hey, this cover and this cover, could you like do, I don't know, could you? And then the art director would just ignore them and do what they wanted. But <laughs> now, now they could bring something in and say, we want this, but more polished. Yeah, and yeah. it was, and they were just like, you know, and it was the, when art directors started losing their power, sales and marketing started getting all the power and covers started becoming more of we want this to look like what was there before because yeah. that sold and so and they were like that was the danger of photoshop not that art went digital but that it put these tools in the hands of people who weren't artists we um one of our earliest guests was tim jacobus who did the goosebumps illustrations like the, oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. how and was he, he? Oh, he's a he's a great. I, a childhood hero of mine. It's yeah. amazing to talk to him. <laughs> Those covers are great. They're yeah. fantastic. It's part of the... I, we could go for another three hours talking about Tim <laughs> Jacobus, but he talked um, He talked a lot about that. So, yeah, about all that yeah. stuff and the transition and, and just everything. So. Well, and the funny thing is, you know, those Goosebumps covers, they're like, they're, they're funny, 
they're witty, they're scary, their 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 execution is so sharp. Mm-hmm. Like they and they really sold the books. You know, yeah. those and the R.L. Stein name. You know, after yes. a while, like it's it's crazy how much rested on those covers. A hundred percent. That's yeah. It was the number one thing for us. Which it's kind of like the uh, anamorph covers. Like yes. just how like disturbing those were. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they're so unsettling. <laughs> yeah, um, Sean, we need to talk to the anamorphs people. We need I, to oh, write yeah. that down. Yeah, that I think we do. Have you reread that series? No, no, no. I think I've only ever read one because they truly like I even as a kid, uh, you know, I would I would geek out over the Goosebump book. I'd look at the Animorph cover and there's something about the that might be where my weird thing with bad CG is to this day, because the Animorph covers are just but they're it's brilliant. But I don't know. They just threw me off. (laughs) I have read like one or two of them. Yeah, we if you get the Animorph people on because those books are dark. I mean, they are dark as hell okay. there's one of them where they bring someone else into their little group of kids who can turn into an animal and he turns out to be like a sociopath and he's like um i can't exactly remember like there's some weird sexual squicky stuff and so but they don't know what to do because they've given him morphing powers and like he can you know he's one of them and so if you stay in someone's body, if you morph into an animal and you're in too long, you stay as that animal. Like one of them morphs into a hawk early on is a hawk forever. And there's a whole weird bestiality subplot that's so weird. Um, <laughs> but they trick the dude into morphing into a rat for too long. And then they take him out to like a pile of rocks in the ocean where these rats that is infested with rats and they just drop them there. And like they've taken a human, trapped him as a rat, yeah. and then left him in the middle of nowhere with other rats who are all just horrible. I'm like, it is some dark. That's terrifying. Stuff. I love yeah. that. That That's is insane. <laughs> I yeah. did not. If if you would have asked me this morning yeah. when I woke up. If, if I would be jumping into Animorph soon, because of the, like, I would yeah. never in read my life. The first, read the first five books. And if you get through the first five and you're not like, holy crap, because it might not just be on your way, but, like, but the first three to five books really do some twisted stuff. And okay. like, if you get through those and you're like, eh, not for me anymore, sure. fair enough. But I think those will make you want to read all 40, 43 or whatever, oh however gosh. many there are. Deal. <laughs> Okay. Um, wow. <laughs> well, not to not to quickly pivot off of Animorphs. Yeah. Uh, God knows we want to talk about it, but you know, before <laughs> before we let you go, um, you know, we do want to talk. I, your next novel comes out in January, correct? Yes. Yes. Um, how to sell a haunted house? Can you, you know, you got log lines for all of your books? Can you give us that log line? Just give us a oh, quick yeah. little snippet of it. Absolutely. So it comes out on January seventeenth. You can pre-order it now. Um, nice. But it's about two adult siblings who can't stand each other who have to come back together when their parents die and clean out their childhood home and put it on the market. And of course it's haunted. And just mm-hmm. to make things even more disgusting, their mom had a Christian puppet ministry and it's haunted by her puppets. Uh, um, <laughs> and so, um, and, you know, this book really, uh, there were a couple of incidents where I had to help um, a friend who had passed away or, or I had a friend who had a parent pass away and always cleaning out the house is kind of like, it's it's rough, man. And yeah. it's, it's a little like childbirth. Like you have the baby, there's all the drama. Oh my God, push, push, it's a baby, it's a boy. And what no one ever talks about is, and now we're gonna spend 45 minutes to two hours passing the placenta. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. and that's sort of what cleaning out the house is after someone dies. It's the placenta, it's the messy, yeah. dirty part that no one wants to do. Right. Um, and it's hard because, you know, you're throwing away 
things that don't matter. But at the same time, it's like, well, this was Dan's or this was whoever's. And you're like, I, I can't just live a life suffocated by their stuff. But mm -hmm. everything I throw out, there's less of them left here. It's hard. So yeah. we had originally scheduled this interview. We were, we were aiming for somewhere around June. And we had to push it back um, because of a, of a loss. I, I lost a, a family member. And I lost no, my I'm sorry. It, thank you. Um, but we had to go through her house. And she's a bit of a oh, hoarder. Man. Yeah. And, uh. and, you know, it was hard for all of us. It was, it was a week plus, and it's still not all gone through. Um, but just getting most of the stuff out, and you're absolutely right. It's, you feel like you're throwing them away. Like, it is, yeah. it is tough. It is and not it's also, easy. And it's also physically grueling because yes. there's yeah. always more stuff than you thought there was going to be yeah. and it's emotionally grueling it is just i mean i don't want to make the book sound like a bummer but like yeah. and, and that's <laughs> the nice thing about horror is you let it lets you turn this weird tough stuff into like yes. a metaphor that you can kick around that's fun absolutely uh, but yeah no i you have my sympathies man because it is it's rough it's as soon as you said that that's what the book was about i was like awesome i'm gonna have an emotional roller coaster when i go through it it's gonna be <laughs> great thanks great no. Well, um no i honestly Mark I was going to say, Sean, January 17th. Yeah, it's, you know, it's already uh, marked. You know what's going down. <laughs> it's yeah. already marked, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah, Grady, again, thank you so much for making the time to do this. We've we've loved talking with you. Um, very oh, it's excited been a blast. for everything that's coming yeah. out. Um, and yeah, hopefully we'll we'll chat again soon. We'll have to get yeah, you back. Yeah, and send me the link once it goes up. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Grady. Thank you. Thanks, y'all. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin' Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin' Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, but after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story, and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin' Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Thank you guys so much for listening to that conversation with Grady Hendrix. Again, uh, the movie adaptation of My Best Friend's Exorcism comes out on September 30th on Amazon Prime. And then his new book, How to Sell a Haunted House, is coming out on January 17th of next year. And you can pre-order that now. But I believe Sean and I already got on that. Um, yep. We wanted to wrap up this episode a little bit differently uh, and kind of add a new, a new thingamajig here. Because you guys, you're not tired of us yet. And if you are, 
Bye. Um, <laughs> we uh, we want to. I want to talk about the mostly horror moment of the week. Um, I feel like every week has its mostly horror moments, and uh, and I wanted to talk about the mostly horror moment of the week. So this one is coming from um, from CBS News, an article on CBS News from Anna Noryeskovich. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Anna, that if I did. didn't, I'm yeah. sorry. Um, but Sean, I don't know if you heard about this. Uh, a skeleton of a female vampire was unearthed at a cemetery in Poland. So put it back. Basic. Ba- put <laughs> it back. Ab- absolutely. I've seen right? this movie, Steve. Put it back. So, so um, and wash in your Poland, hands. Uh, they were <laughs> that's the most important thing. Uh, in Poland, archaeologists were at a cemetery and they unearthed this woman. Um, she had a sickle around her neck. Uh, so like a scythe that was like kind of lay- it was like laying. Basically, here's how it was laying. It was it was preventing her from returning from the dead. So if she got up, there would be a sickle right above her neck, right? Yeah. Um, and there was also a triangular padlock on her foot. Um. And basically, they discovered this in late August, so this happened, you know, a couple weeks ago. Um, One of the people who represented the research team said that the woman uh, had a silk headdress that had gold or silver thread, um, and that the padlock and the sickle were linked to 17th century superstitions, um, and basically, you know, said that, like, this is something where they they thought that they were afraid of her coming back uh, from, from, you know, the dead, um, and they said, in this context, these practices can be considered anti-vampiric. Um, like I said, the farming tool was placed with the blade around the neck. Uh, and they thought that if she tried to get up, they would, like, cut her head off. Um, this type of practice is very com- was very common throughout Poland in the 17th century uh, as a response to a reported vampire epidemic. Um, but sometimes, like, corpses were burned, they were smashed with stones, or they had their heads and legs cut off. So that way they couldn't uh, return from the dead. Um, and I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, I, I've never heard of something like this before. At the very end of this article, it says, this is not the first such discovery in the century. Um, in South Alabama, obviously in the U.S., they found six so-called vampire skeletons um, at a cemetery. So, Put her <laughs> back. Put her back. Listen, don't. Did, did these people clearly didn't watch Boys from County Hell? All right. No, Stop they didn't. touching shit. And you know what? When you put her back, do a blood offering. All right. Leave like a gallon yeah. or two, at least a couple yes. Gatorade bottles filled with your polish blood that you the, put back. Polish yes. the bones. Yep. And put the don't. T- oh, if you touch the necklace, I'm going to punch someone in the face. Put her back with the same exact soil that you took. Ridiculous. Yes. Also, I want to apologize really quick. Um, I have realized that my cat watering fountain is going off. So if that's playing in this episode, you can't hear, can't it? hear it. No? no, I don't think we heard it on the last one, but I want to say that. But also, I don't know if you, you heard. Called it a, you heard it cat. a cat. What you is called it called? It a cat watering. Fountain. That's what it is. It's a fountain that waters cat. It's this. I consider this what waters my cat. This waters Carl. Um, that's fair. But uh, also, I, I can't tell if you hear, but our our group chat is going off. Uh, your phone and my phone and my computer are all just going nuts because our roommates are hungry. <laughs> nope, so. didn't hear that, but it's okay. I'll, I'll cut your audio. That is this, a this episode. that is a great mostly horror moment. Put her back. Now, uh, now it's on though. Now that we have this new segment, the Dukes are up. 
and I'm going to find the most horrific stuff that I can find out there in the world, and hopefully it's not more people digging up vampires. You, do you <laughs> want... You said yourself, uh, it, historically, they already have a, a vampire epidemic. Do you want another vampire epidemic? Because this is how this you is... get vampire epidemics. Absolutely. Put it on a shirt. <laughs> um, this has been the mostly horror moment of the week. Come back next week for Sean's. Uh, we will catch you guys next time. Goodbye. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Mostly Horror early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The wait is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience. Quickly, I see that. Ding! The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything. You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that. New cases. She wanted to fight me. Leave her alone. Okay, so, um... Not, this is not a so. This is a period. Classic Judy. Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would make a beeline for the door. The Emmy Award-winning series returns. How did I know that? I have a crystal ball in my head. It's an all-new season. It's streaming. You can say anything. (laughs) Judy Justice. Only on Freebie.